Tonight, I don't have a handout with me. Um, I'm going to be trying. Tr- I'm going to try to. Uh, I'm going to be trying. <laughs> that wasn't a good way to start. I'd be trying tonight to <laughs> talk a little. I'm going back to my street roots, you know. Um, we, we will be trying to uh, read the, the text up here on the screen. And so hopefully that will be available to you shortly. Um, we'll be going through the book of uh, Esther once again. And now we're at Esther chapter 8. And so I will try to provide most of the text for you on the screen um, for this evening. Last week, Pastor um, gave an introductory message, as you might know, to the book of Job. And he uh, mentioned the incredible reversal of circumstances that occurred in Job's life from the beginning of the book to the end. And in the beginning, you might remember that Job lost everything, his children, his health, his possessions. He went through a dark period um, that lasted many chapters, actually, uh, where his wife and even his closest friends failed to comfort him. Um, And they made actually the situation worse. But then in the end, God revealed himself to Job and Job humbled himself before God. In the last verses of the book, Job was given more children, more possessions and more years than his first part of his life. So you might say that all the bad things that happened in Job's life were reversed. Well, as we come to the close of the book of Esther, we're not exactly there yet, but we're getting close. We see in chapter 8 that also God orchestrates a grand reversal of events in the lives of Esther, Mordecai, and the entire Jewish nation in the land of Persia. A wonderful reversal thing, something I want to point out to you by the end of this lesson. But uh, that's kind of the theme for tonight, reversal, a great big reversal. And I'm going to call my lesson tonight from victory, victim to victory, excuse me, Esther 8 and the justice of God. Okay, we we got it up on the screen there. So when we left off in chapter 7, Esther gathered up the strength to speak to the king, Ahasuerus, as he's called in the New American Standard. But you just have to excuse me. I just like calling him Xerxes. Partially because that's what I secretly wished I was named Xerxes. If I was Pastor X, wouldn't that be really cool, don't you think? Um, So if I refer to him in that way, even though it's going to say Ahasuerus on the screen, just ignore that. just how I refer to him. That's the way the NIV calls him, I believe. Um, The king is uh, sitting on his throne and Esther is really nervous about going to him, but she finally gathers up the strength to do it. She encourages her family, uh, all the Jews in Persia, to pray for her. She does. And the king responds positively. Not because of just some stroke of good luck, because of God's grace in the situation. And, uh, and she reveals to him that this plot has been hatched against the Jews and, and that it's Haman all along who's been doing it. And thankfully, um, the king is on her side. He's offended. He's angered. And immediately they take Haman away and he's hanged on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. And that's kind of where that ends when we stopped in chapter seven last. OK, and and you might think, oh, that serves well almost as the ending to this to this book. But it's not yet the ending. We still have two more chapters to go. And as we'll see, there's still some unfinished business that has to be resolved. So let's get to our text. You'll see it up here. If you want to follow along your Bibles, if you're a traditionalist that way, that's fine. Uh, otherwise, I'll have them up on the screen for you. Esther chapter eight. Let's start by reading verses one and two. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
Okay, so you can see, just from the beginning, this picks up right where it was uh, left off for us in chapter 7. You see, it starts with the words, on that day, which means it was on the very same day that Haman was executed, when all this dramatic stuff took place. And on that day, the text tells us that King Xerxes gave Esther all of Haman's property and wealth. Did not go to Haman's wife or his friends who are mentioned in chapter 6. You'll notice that. doesn't go to his next of kin but rather the king gave it all to Esther. And if you're interested in historical stuff, there's a historian named Herodotus. It's written down for us. He writes about Persian times and how this very practice was, in fact, legit. So the Bible's not making any of this stuff. Just another example of uh, where the Bible is affirmed by history and historians. And Herodotus tells us that when a traitor was found out, the king could take his property and give it to whomever he wished. So that's exactly what we find happening here. And it makes sense that it's going to Esther because she is the one who was wronged by Haman. So as the king gave um, these things to Esther, um, she also took the opportunity whoops, to reveal uh, who Mordecai was to her, as it says in verse 1. And as, that probably means more than just she revealed to the king that he was her cousin. Uh, she probably at least told, her, told him that, that they were related by blood, and so this whole decree against the Jews affected both of them. But she probably went a step further to that and told the background of this whole story about how he raised her. And when it says what he was to her, that's not the normal Hebrew we, when we expect to see something that says like how he was related to her. There's a normal Hebrew word that would be used in that occasion. This is a lot more broad, saying who he was. And so there was probably a lot more of the background, how he raised her, how he was her spiritual advisor through this whole thing. It seems that she gives proper credit to Mordecai and doesn't just take all the um, credit to herself. And so when Xerxes hears all this, he's willing to honor Mordecai. And so that's a good thing. After all, Xerxes is probably reminded that Mordecai was, one of, uh, was that one person who saved his life in an earlier account. If you remember back from previous chapters, we told about how Mordecai was the one who discovered this plot against the king's life. Um, the king's life was spared, and then he forgets to reward Mordecai. And then later on in the story, when it matters the most, actually, um, the king is in bed, he can't sleep, and they read the royal records, and it comes to that part of all pages of this royal record where Mordecai saved the king's life, and he's reminded of it, and he says, oh yes, did we ever do anything to, to honor that person? And, and they said, no, sire. And so they immediately, he, he goes out and, and honors him. And just at that point, Haman's coming in to find out how he can kill Mordecai, and he wants to get permission to do it that night, and it turns out now he's the one who has to go and honor Mordecai and parade him through the streets, saying this is a man the king wants to honor. Well, all that good stuff. Okay, So all that just took place, and it was just a matter of days before when all that happened. So I'm sure the king remembers who Mordecai is, and so now he has no problem at all honoring him. So if you remember, in um, Esther 3.10, the king had given Haman a special ring, a signet ring. And we'll read about that. It says, Then the king took off his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And now we're going to see that this ring that he had previously give, given Haman, um, he, uh, he now gives to, to Mordecai. Now, what was a, a signet ring? Um, I didn't get a chance to explain this before. Maybe you already know. Signet ring, here's the best image I could find on the Internet. Um, a ring that was worn by a king or somebody of importance. 
and it would usually have a picture of that person doing something great. And here's a good example, actually, that you see on the screen, because it usually showed him doing something like killing a bear or killing a lion, showing the king's strength. Here I think there's a person on a chariot hunting, okay? And, and you can see the shape of it. Usually it was in an oval-type shape, and you can imagine if you had some hot wax, you'd press your ring onto that wax and it would create an inverse image. So often these were cut out in the inverse way that you'd expect so that the wax would kind of pop out. And in that way, you could create a seal for a letter, and that letter, if it were opened, you'd know because the seal would be missing. Now, the fact that he's giving it to first Haman and now to Mordecai shows that he's entrusting him with some authority. He can write these letters and seal it with the king's ring. It's like his signature. It's like giving him a stamp with his signature. Okay? Uh, and when people see that, they can assume rightly that it's from the king, even if Mordecai is the one who's authored it because it's got the king's seal on it. Okay? So now he's apparently gotten this ring back from Haman before he executed him, and now it's given to Mordecai. And you can see right here in the picture, there's a little example of how that would work with, with the wax. So, now that makes Mordecai uh, kind of a prime minister of the land, which is quite, quite incredible. When you think about how he began in the beginning of the book, uh, he was mourning in the streets when he heard this decree against him. He was wearing nothing but sackcloth. Now he's wearing the king's ring and he's standing in the king's presence. Now, like Haman, he's one of the few people that could go into the king's presence without even asking. That was more than Esther could do earlier in the book, even though she was the queen. So this is pretty impressive. Mordecai now is a person of power. Okay? Again, we could say, that's wonderful. Haman's dead. Mordecai's honored. Esther's honored. End of story, right? The end? Close the book? Not exactly. Okay, we still have something that's unresolved, and we'll see what that is in the next few verses. Verses 3 through 6. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended to the golden scepter to Esther, and so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it pleases the king, and I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamaditha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Okay, so here we see what the problem is. Even though Mordecai had been elevated, even though Haman is gone, there's a big problem. The Jews are still scheduled to be destroyed. You might remember that from Esther 3.13, that Haman had issued a decree ordering the Persian people to destroy quote, kill, annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, end quote. Well, that was still in effect. That was still in effect. And if you're like me, you might be surprised that the king hasn't taken care of this. Okay? You would have expected, if you, you didn't know what Esther was going to ask here, that he killed Haman and took care of all that. If he cared about his queen, you almost might think, oh, Xerxes would have taken care of all this. It shouldn't, shouldn't even be here. But it's not. And that made me wonder as I was studying it this week, why isn't it? Why isn't it taken care of? It seems to me that this is entirely in keeping with what we know about um, King Xerxes of Persia. He was a selfish individual who was very easily turned one way or the other. If you get enough wine in the guy, he could do pretty much anything you advise him to do. 
He was somebody who was prone to anger, as we saw in the beginning, where he just got rid of his queen because she refused to come before him in one particular party that he was throwing. He got angry and just murdered Haman pretty readily. Um, But yet, we can see he didn't take care of the, the real problem here. It seems that he was more concerned about his own reputation, that somebody would threaten to kill his wife. And then when Haman's pleading with Esther as he leaves the room, he comes back to find her on his, I'm sorry, to see him on her lap. And then he says, are you going to come here and even molest my queen as well? So he's upset about that, but he doesn't care about the fact that, you know, millions of Jews are going to be killed throughout the kingdom. Um, He's caring more about his own personal hurt than the general thing. And that's exactly in keeping with what we know about this king. So uh, Esther has to go and bring this to the king's attention once more. And with many tears, she comes into the king's presence pleading with the king to act to reverse the law. Now, you'll notice that we don't have quite the tension that we did before where she had to debate whether or not it was a good idea to come into the presence of the king. You notice here that he still has to extend the golden scepter to her. So that permission is still required. But I think because it's just like a day later, she doesn't have to worry as much about, is the king going to kill me or not? Is he going to welcome me into his presence? He's pretty much on her side now. So even though she enters and has to get this extended to her, he... He's on her side. So there isn't as much drama about that. And once she is welcomed, she rises, we see, and asks for the king to issue a command that would take back the law that was previously devised by Haman. Since he is the king and the order was given in his name in chapter 3, he is the only one that can undo it, so she thinks. So let's see how the king responds. Let's go to verses 7 and 8. So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now, you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree that is written in the name of the king and is sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Okay, so you see, of course, the king acts Positively, And that's a good sign. He doesn't say, quit bothering me with this. I saved your life. Aren't you grateful for that? Leave me alone about this other business about your people. No, he, he doesn't do that. There is a little bit of a sense. I am curious when I read verse 7, why he says, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther and him they have hanged on the gallows. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, I just want to remind you, I have done something for you. You know, just before you go asking other things, I have done this, but nevertheless... You go ahead and and, and do this. It seems like he's stating, just kind of trying to remind her again of what he's already done for her. But we're grateful that he does go forward and give her permission to act. And um, you'll notice um, that Xerxes doesn't simply take back the first decree like Esther has asked. In the previous verses, she says, please revoke it, take it back. And he doesn't do that. He says, write a new law. Why is that? Well, we see in verse 8 why that is. He says, A decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. May not be revoked. Now, that may seem odd to us. I know it seemed odd to me. Because as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why don't you just take it back? You're the king. So what if you made up the rule? You're the king. You can take back whatever you want. Nobody's going to question you, right? 
But I think we have to get back into the ancient mindset here, ancient Persian mindset, and even biblical mindset. Uh, in today's day and age, I think in general, just stepping back from this situation and looking at you know, our word broadly, I think people take their word a lot less serious today than they would have back then. There's a lot more said in the Bible about vows than we like to admit, about making your yes be yes and your no be no. And back then, it was a serious thing. If you, if you gave a vow to something, in a lot of different cultures we see, in Israelite culture, or in, we can even see in this Persian culture, that that usually was, was the law. That was going to stay. It wasn't something that was easily revoked. When a person said something, it meant something. Today, we can just say something oh, and, and go, um, I didn't really mean that. I, was just, I wasn't thinking straight when I said that. You know I couldn't have meant that. that. That's a little too serious. I can't possibly fulfill what I said I was going to do now. We say that so flippantly now. But back then, I don't think that was the case. And, and in this case, we see, we, even with the king, that if he had decreed something and put it down in writing, that could not be revoked. Even the king was unwilling to break his honor by going back on the word that he had written down. This isn't something that's foreign to the Bible, even with kings, um, that is only found here. We can look to other passages of Scripture where the same thing happens. Think about the book of Daniel, when he has an encounter with Darius, and he's about to be thrown uh, into the lion's den. Let's look at that. Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. We have these administrators and these wise men, so to speak. They're trying to trap Daniel in his words and get him killed. Okay, so that's the context. It says, so the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king, this is King Darius, and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, and advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue a decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing, not realizing what exactly he had done and how that would apply to Daniel. So let's read on what happens with this. Okay? Uh, it says in verse 13 now, the same chapter, Then they, that is the advisors, said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard of this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that a king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, who you continually serve, rescue you. Okay. So there we have an example of the exact same thing happening. And as you can see on the screen, we've got Darius troubled. This is the best picture of Darius I could find. Uh, They say it's him troubled. Looks more like he's asleep, but trust me, he's troubled. Um, And then there's Daniel uh, who's in the lion's den. And of course, God kept him safe. But the illustration here is that Darius wanted to stop this. He wanted to stop his own words, but he couldn't. He didn't want to break his honor. There was the rule of the, of the Persians. He's a Persian king, by the way. And, and so is Xerxes, just at a later time. Um, and, and because he had made this statement, they had trapped him in his words, he was unable to take it back. As best as, as he really uh, wanted to, to take it back, he couldn't. And so now, that was the dilemma that Esther and Mordecai were in. Even though Haman was dead, 
this law was still in effect and it was going to take place. There was no way to repeal it. However, this doesn't mean that all was lost. The king doesn't say, I'm sorry, uh, you're out of luck. I can't take it back. That's the end. And, and everybody perishes. No, the king gives them authority to write another edict, which would counteract the first one. And just like in Esther 3, where Xerxes gave Haman the power to write whatever edict he saw fit, here we see another parallel where the king gives Mordecai the same authority, essentially giving him a blank check to write whatever he wants. So how does Mordecai counteract this law? Well, it's pretty interesting what he comes up with. Here we go. Verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote out in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent it by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including their children and women, and plunder their spoil. On one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impaled, impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds and the decree was given out in the citadel of Susa. Okay, that was a big passage there. But let's just summarize what we just read. Mordecai was given the authority to write a new decree. And when he had given it some thought, the king's scribes were called to write it down. Verse 9 says that this took place on the 23rd day of the third month, which on the Hebrew calendar is called Sivan. And that would have been, just to translate that into our calendar, June 474 B.C. And this was two months and ten days after Haman had issued his order, and a few months before that day where the destruction was supposed to take place was going to be t carried out. The scribes wrote down Mordecai's edict, and they sent it to all of the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, it says, the princes, the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, it says, to all their languages, as we read. And this is the same list. If we were to go back, it would be very interesting. A lot of parallels with chapter 3. Maybe if you have your Bibles open, maybe I should have had you turn there and been open to chapter 3, because the way this is worded is almost identical with what happens in chapter 3 when Haman is given that authority to make a decree to end the Jews' lives, uh, except now here we have Mordecai uh, doing it. The, the wording about the provinces and the satraps and the governors and all that, almost word for word in the same order. And in even the, the edict that's given out is almost word for word. It's, it's amazing. Okay. The idea behind all that is that it's supposed to go out to everybody and to go out fast so that all of the governors, all the king's men who, all the king's horses and all the king's men, uh, don't finish that, um, they, they all send out this message to, to go and, and bring this to, to the people. And so we see that it goes from Ethiopia and uh, India. Those are the two points that are mentioned. So if we pull up a map here, I found this online. This is the, 
kingdom of Persia as it existed back then. And you can see, I've circled for you, Ethiopia all the way on this side and then India all the way on this side. seems pretty uh, convenient that the capital of Susa, where they are, is located directly in the middle of that empire. So when it says that this is going to be delivered from Ethiopia to India, you see this isn't just like a trip around the block. Okay? This isn't just like, oh, go down the road and tell everybody there and stop. Okay? This is going to, in a day before airplanes, a day before cars and all mass transit, to get from Susa to Ethiopia or to get to India, it's going to take some time. So some people have asked, why is it that this edict is you know, declared so far early before the Jews were to be destroyed? It was supposed to be a few months later that, that, that they actually were going to be killed. Well, you can see if you, if you travel back in the ancient Near East at this time, it's going to take a few months for people to get there, okay? Or a few weeks or whatever, depending on where you're going. So it was entirely appropriate that they made this decree when they did and they sent these riders off in haste. So this is what happens. And uh, Mordecai writes this edict and the king's name is on it and he seals it with the signet ring which he was given in the beginning of the chapter and now it's official law. Mordecai had his official messengers carry all this out, and we, we talked about that already. Um, you notice uh, back in those verses it said, riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. I don't, maybe if you know what horses, you know, all about that, you know what that means. I didn't, so I had to go and look in another translation, and I think I prefer the way the NIV puts it the mounted couriers rode fast on horses, especially bred for the king. That makes a little more sense than sired by the royal stud. If you want to go and use that in a sentence this week, I dare you. And please come back and and tell me how you managed to pull that off. But in this case, you're talking about just the best horses in the land. Okay, I think that's the point. They have the fastest horses, the best riders, the the royal men. Okay, mounted on horses, they're ready to go. And uh, that's what's taking place. So they took off in haste. That's what it says in verse 14. And they get it out really fast. Now, what was this decree that was issued? Basically, it was an announcement that said that any Jew in the Persian Empire had the right to defend themselves against anyone who would attack them, and yes, even kill the ones who would attack them and take their possessions. Now, we'll find out later on in chapter 9, they don't actually use that right. It says they can take their possessions, but it makes it very clear that they don't do that. And I think that's important to understand and keep in mind as we read on. The day that they were to do this was the 13th day of the month of Adar. Which verse, verse 12 said that. And that's the same day that was ordained for the destruction of the Jews. So on the same day, Mordecai's issued this law to counteract the first one. It says the Jews can defend themselves. And, uh, and I think that's an important point to understand as we're trying to make sense of all this. Because these verses can seem somewhat harsh, depending on how you look at it. But I think the key to understanding it all is that the edict is giving permission for self defense. Because otherwise, at first reading, it seems like this is a difficult part to accept. Again, if we look at verse 11, it says, in these letters, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people and province which might attack them, including women and children, and to plunder their spoil. As you read this, that phrase, women and children, just might not, if you're like me, it just didn't sit well at first you're thinking, that seems rather harsh. And, and if you read another translation, some translations try and get around it. Look at the NIV here. In the underlined portion, they translate it as to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children. 
So they try and make it the direct object. Like if they're going to attack you or your women and children, then you can defend yourself to try and soften it. Unfortunately, in most every commentary I've read, this is almost entirely unwarranted. Um, the way it's worded is almost, like I said, identical to what you see in chapter 3, in the edict that, uh, in which Haman said to destroy all the Jewish men and women and children. And this is being said in the, in the exact reverse, uh, you know, to defend yourself against these men, women, and children. Okay? And so I think we have to go with what the NAS says. Then the question becomes, how do we understand that? Is that going too far? Is that a little cruel? Again, I think the, the way we understand it, though, is by understanding that Mordecai was authorizing this as a way of defending themselves against attacks. Not that they could just go out and, and murder whoever they wanted. But again, there were some people here in the Persian kingdom who were ready, who were sharpening their swords for that one day to come. And they were telling their, their wives and their children, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go and slaughter some of these people who don't belong in our land, who are outsiders, who don't belong here, enemies of the king. And they were getting ready to do this. And Mordecai is saying, on that day, when that happens, you are allowed to defend yourself against any of your enemies. I think that is the best way to understand it. <clears throat> now, you might ask, why couldn't the Jews do this before? That's another question I had in my mind. So, it's giving them permission to defend themselves. Well, if Haman were still alive, wouldn't they have done that anyway? They wouldn't have just stood there and said, okay, kill me. Um, of course they would have defended themselves. But in order to understand this, you have to understand that, that the government was against them before. And that's no longer the case. So the answer is, sure, they could have defended themselves before. Sure, if Haman had authorized their destruction, if somebody came to their door with a sword, they could have pulled out their sword and, you know, Ninja style, tried to block it or something. I don't know, tried to stop what was going on. But um, you have the government coming at you. And that makes a whole lot of difference. We also see back in chapter 3 that Haman had paid a large sum of money, or he had gotten King Xerxes to pay a large sum of money to make this happen. Which means he probably hired um, government officials, maybe the army, to kind of invade in all these territories and kind of take part in this. So how exactly are you going to defend yourself against people, your neighbors who hate you, and people who just have this grudge against you, and against the government itself. I think a good analogy, a good way to th see how serious this was, and how the idea of defending yourself just really wasn't on the table before, is to, to think about Syria right now. That's a picture I pulled off the internet of you know, police brutality that's happening right now in the nation of Syria, where the, the, the ruler of that country is essentially sanctioning government action against protesters. And um, you, can, you, you might ask the same question. Well, couldn't they defend themselves? Yes. But what are you going to do against police with clubs and shields and when the whole government is against you and there's m money funding uh, your demise? So I think we can see that when it says they were allowed to defend themselves, now that takes on a whole new meaning for the Jews. Yes, they could have done it before, but now the government is not against them. In fact, now that the government officials are sending out this letter... Um, they know that they should not be on the side of evil. They should not be the ones attacking the Jews. And in fact, maybe they might come onto the Jews' side. And we'll see actually some of them do that as we go on. So I think that's the best way to understand it here. Now they have the government on their side. They have the king's wishes on their side. Now I think they, they stand a chance. Esther 15, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Mordecai left the king's presence now after this decree had been issued 
wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many of the people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. So we see the result. Now we get to the result. This edict was created and it was actually quite wise the way that it was written out by Mordecai and the king so that now even though they couldn't reverse the edict that the king gave, they could create another one that counteracted the first one, that trumped the first one to effectively undo it. And so now, whenever this was uh, sent out, it said at the end of those last verses that we read that these horses went out with all speed. And you can almost imagine like a wave of celebration as it first starts in Susa, the citadel of Susa where it starts, and, and people celebrate there. And then as it goes out, as these riders reach the different destinations, there's cheering that goes up among the Jews that live in that territory and it extends and keeps going all the way out to Ethiopia and India. And everybody rejoices because... Not because, you know, again, people want to think of this as some sort of bloodthirsty thing. It's not. They're rejoicing because now they're not going to die. Now they've been saved. God has saved them. And so they're rejoicing in that. That the, the, the tables have been turned, as it were. And so we see that Mordecai leaves in royal garments. He started out again in, in sackcloth and ashes. And now he's wearing purple. Something that you couldn't even wear unless you were part of the nobility. And he's wearing blue and white, also just very expensive clothing. He's wearing a crown. And the king would often give that to people he wanted to honor. Not necessarily that he was the king, but if you look at him, he is dressed like a king. So that's pretty amazing. And, uh, and he left as an honored person. And the, and the Jews celebrated, it says, with happiness, joy, and gladness. It says that some people even became Jews because of it. Now, it's, we want to be careful as we read that. You look at the very last part of that verse, it says many of them became Jews because of the fear of the Jews who seized them. Um, might not be that all of them you know, understood who the God of the Bible was and that they renounced their gods and that a ton of people did this. Maybe some of them did. But I think it gives us the reason as to why many of them did. It says because the fear of the Jews had seized them. So I think it's also likely that some of these individuals turned to the Jewish faith just because they didn't want to be killed as well. Now they see that it's in their political favor to become Jewish so to speak. So they don't want to side with the wrong side. They want to be on the side that is winning. And so that might be a way to understand that as well. But all this to say it's a very good ending for the Jews. Not the final ending. We still have chapter 9 to go and we'll talk about that at another time. But here as we come to the end of chapter 8, this is pretty amazing. Well, what are we to see here in this text? First of all, I told you in the beginning of this passage that this was about great reversals. And I just want you to take a notice here Oh, that's uh, the rejoicing picture I skipped right over. Um, reversals in the book of Esther. I want you to pay attention to this chart if you can read it. And just see some of the parallels that exist from chapter 3 and chapter 8. Let me just read some of them at the top. King gives Haman his ring. That same ring is given to Mordecai. Haman summons the king's scribes. Mordecai summons the king's scribes. Letters are written, sealed with the ring. Also written in Mordecai's hand. All Jews, even women and children, are killed in one day. Enemies, women, and children are to be killed in one day. Haman's decree is displayed as law, 8.13. Mordecai's decree is publicly displayed as law. The couriers go out in haste. The city is bewildered, except now it's reversed and the city of Susa rejoices. 
And now some other ones sprinkled from other chapters of the same book. Mordecai, again, is wearing sackcloth. Now he leaves wearing royal robes. Mordecai goes through the city crying, and now he's led through the city in honor with much rejoicing surrounding him. Zeresh, that was Haman's wife, advised Mordecai's death to Haman. But she also predicted Haman's ruin. That was in chapter 5 and 6. And then also back in chapter 5 and chapter 7, Haman built a gallows for Mordecai. We said that he was hung on those same gallows. So I think it's amazing. If you were to look in this book, you might see what's normally called a, a, a chiasm or a chiasm. We learned about this in seminary. It's a complicated word, but basically it just means that if you have a, an outline, it's kind of an outline that comes in and goes back out. That you kind of indent each line and the center point is, is the main point and then it kind of goes back out and the parallels occur, occur on the same points as you approach the center. So, you know, uh, Mordecai is in sackcloth. Now he uh, comes out in honor. You know, there's this edict that's given by Haman. There's an edict given by Mordecai. You know, and you can kind of see these parallel points that kind of mimic each other or mirror each other throughout the book. Maybe not in a perfect way, but you can certainly see how much is just overturned. And I think this is a big part of this book. The theme of Esther is one of the tables being turned. In fact, we'll see in chapter 9 the next time that uh, in verse 1 it says, On this day the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. In, in Jewish tradition, if you're Jewish, there's a Yiddish phrase uh, that goes, Venahafahu, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right, Venahafahu, which means it was turned upside down. It's a common phrase that's used during the celebration of Purim um, to talk about just the theme of this entire book, how God turned everything upside down. And that's exactly what we see as we look at this chart, as we analyze the details of this book and everything that just happened in chapter 8, God reversed it. I think that the lesson that we're to learn from this particular chapter is that we have an awesome God, a God who is of immeasurable power, who can reverse any bad situation in a moment and cause evil things that seem hopeless to be reversed and to go according to his plan in a way that might even benefit us sometimes or might bring us great joy sometimes as God can reverse anything with just a blink of an eye. We're not promised that in every circumstance in life. I want you to be clear on that. I'm not saying the application of Esther is that God reversed Mordecai's situation. He will always reverse yours. No, as, as we've heard uh, in others of pastors' lessons, that when we talk about suffering, sometimes our troubles might only come to an end when we are resurrected. It doesn't mean that in this life, all of the bad things that have happened are going to be taken away. All the illnesses we experience will be taken back. All the uh, things we lost might be gained back. We're not promised that we'll have the same ending as Job. But we do learn a lot about God's power, that there is nothing that's too far from his power to accomplish. The second lesson I think that we can take away as we close here is the justice of God. You see, it might be difficult for you to accept some of the, the harsh language it said about them taking vengeance on their enemies. But we find that this is nothing um, foreign to the Bible, and there's a very good reason for it. You might know if you're reading through your Bible in a year right now, you'd be in Deuteronomy, and, and you might have gotten through some of the commands where God told his people to, to destroy those wicked nations that surrounded them. It might seem equally harsh when you see that kind of command. And people have often asked, how could a loving God do that? Well, the answer is that we all are deserving of judgment. It doesn't mean that God is un, un, uh, uh, not graceful, but 
that he is being just when he does that because it shows that all of us deserve to die. When we read about Abraham and he's pleading with God, don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you destroy it even if there are ten people that are righteous there? And God says, I I will spare it if there's ten righteous. But there isn't ten righteous. There's not five. There's not three. There's not two. There's not one even. That shows something about how God views righteousness. We are not just generally good people. We are all wicked people. Even Lot, who is saved from it, isn't saved because of his righteousness, but because of his relationship to Abraham, because of God's grace in that way. And so all of us deserve this judgment that we see. All of us deserve to be uh, destroyed. And sometimes God used his people as agents of that judgment. And we might ask the question, well, how are we to rejoice with the Jews today as Christians? How is it that we don't see that kind of command for us? Obviously, we're not called to go out and fight some sort of holy war and destroy all of our enemies like maybe we might see in the Old Testament or maybe a hint of here in Esther. And we say, okay, good. I'm glad we don't have to do that. Why is that, though? I think the answer lies in the cross of Christ. You see, in the death of Jesus Christ, he took on all of God's wrath that we otherwise would have had taken on ourselves. All of God's vengeance for the things that we've done in our life was absorbed by Christ's death on the cross. And so we are very much ones who would have stood in front of God worthy to be judged. And now because God has forgiven that on our behalf, we have lost all rights to be vengeful ourselves because God has been merciful to us. So we no longer have that right to be able to go out and try and take vengeance on others because we have been forgiven ourselves. And understand, it's not that the idea of God judging wicked nations, that's not reprehensible. It shouldn't be. In fact, that is not ceased. Our role in it has ceased. We are not supposed to be agents of God's judgment. But God's war on wickedness has not ended. It's rather been placed in the hands of Christ. And we see that when we come to the end of the book of Revelation. We, we like to think of Jesus as this very gentle character, you know, holding a lamb with blowing hair and in you know, a field full of flowers. But we often forget the way that he's described at the very end of the Bible. He fulfills God's justice. He fulfills God's war on wickedness. See, all of that has not been taken away. It's not that God doesn't care about unrighteousness. It's that Christ is the one that now is going to take care of that for us. So then in Revelation 19, we see images that otherwise we might think of as terrifying or a little bit extreme, but now are completely in keeping with this theme. It says, I saw in heaven standing open there before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him. That kind of language. So it's not that all that has disappeared. It's that we lay it on Christ and Christ is the judge. And we put our great hope in that Christ one day will come and judge the wickedness of this world. And it's not that we're rejoicing over the death of people that we might even know who oppose God. Certainly we're not supposed to rejoice in that. But we rejoice with God in the, the, the removal of wickedness and evil from this world. We are all longing for a day when that is going to be taken away. And when we think of it in that light, now we can understand why the Jews were celebrating. Not because they were rejoicing over somebody's death, but now they were rejoicing because they were going to be saved. And so we see from this, this chapter a God 
who rescues us from wickedness. A God who is just, who vindicates us and will one day judge the world and remove all evil. And just like the the Jews of that day were looking forward to that day when they would be saved, we look forward in an even greater way to the day that Christ comes back and will save us from all evil, all wickedness, and all terrible things that uh, trouble us in this world. So I think the lessons, as I've said, are twofold. We rejoice in a God who can reverse any situation, and reverse in a, we, we rejoice rather in a God who is just. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson that we learn from the, chap, the, the eighth chapter of, of the book of Esther. Thank you for the way in which you turn things around. You turn the situation on its head. Turn the tables, as we might say. How through Haman's wicked schemes, even he was not able to complete what he had set out to do. But God, you took each and every one, every part of his schemes and turned it on its head, reversed it, caused it to work backwards so that your people were not destroyed, but rather saved. And may we leave this uh, not just... Um, thinking about how great and wonderful a story this is, God, but may we turn our eyes to you, a great and wonderful God who is powerful beyond all comprehension, recognizing, Lord, that you can reverse any negative situation if you so choose. We recognize, Lord, you don't always do that. And in those times, God, help us to be patient and to recognize that ultimately you will actually um, bring about our, our peace and a vindication of us when we are resurrected on the last day and help us to wait patiently and with joy for that day. But God, ultimately help us not to lose faith in your power, your might, and your justice that we see demonstrated here in this chapter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.